I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients. From cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I am thrilled and honored to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Bland as my guest. If you're familiar with functional medicine, it is largely due to Dr. Bland's efforts. He coined the term functional medicine way back in 1991 when he co-founded the Institute for Functional Medicine, or IFM, with his wife, Susan Bland. IFM has gone on to train over 100,000 clinicians around the world in functional medicine. Dr. Bland began his career as a professor of biochemistry at the University of Puget Sound, where he studied vitamin E and its effects on cellular aging. And he is also a best-selling author, thought leader, educator, entrepreneur, and consultant. I've had the privilege of encountering Dr. Bland's work over the years and have always been impressed by his rigor and scientific acumen and his ability to do very deep dives on a wide range of scientific topics and then to translate those insights that he has into practical and actionable steps that practitioners and uh, the general public can take toward improving their health. Uh, One of his areas of expertise is the immune system. So that's uh, what we're going to focus on in the conversation today. But since I've never had the opportunity to interview Dr. Bland, I couldn't resist uh, taking the chance to ask him about his history with functional medicine. What led to the fundamental insights that inspired him to coin the term functional medicine and to co-found the Institute for Functional Medicine, what he, uh, he's most proud of, what developments have most surprised him over the years, and, and even what some of his disappointments have been in terms of where we stand today uh, in our medical paradigm. 
This was uh, one of my favorite podcast interviews. I consider Dr. Bland to be an inspiration and a mentor, and I was so grateful to be able to spend this time with him. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's dive in. Dr. Jeffrey Bland, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you as a guest. I can't tell you how much I am looking forward to this discussion. You are you're a master, and I'm really looking forward to our repartee. Well, I know I owe a lot of my work to you. We wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation about this thing called functional medicine uh, were, it, were it not for your pioneering work. I believe you coined the term back in 1991, if I'm not mistaken, when you, when you started the Institute for Functional Medicine with your wife, Susan Bland, which has now trained over 100,000 clinicians, I believe, yeah. in this incredible body of work that we call functional medicine. So I have to ask, before we dive into the immune system, which I'm really looking forward to, just a little bit about the origin story. Like how, how did you come to this concept of functional medicine? What led you to that? And, and, and then the founding of the Institute for Functional Medicine or IFM as we know it today. Well, you know, I, as we both know, life is uh, not a linear path that, you know, as I say, life happens in between our plans. And so for me, uh, if you would have asked me when I was in college uh, at the University of California, Irvine, back in the 1960s, would I ultimately somehow end up with this concept of functional medicine in this extraordinary community of people like yourselves that I've had the privilege of working with all these last now 50 years, actually going on almost 60 years, hard to believe. Um, I would have said the probability would have been approaching zero. But as a consequence of really a number of events, and I think one of the most seminal events was as a university professor back in the 1970s and early 80s, I had the pleasure and privilege of meeting Dr. Linus Pauling, two-time Nobel Prize winning laureate, who was gracious and asked me if I would uh, come and spend two years of a sabbatical period in 1981 to 83, uh, running a research lab at his Institute of Science and Medicine in, in uh, Stanford, Palo Alto, California. And that was a life change for me um, because it really opened my eyes to the much broader world that I hope to provide some contributions to. You know, he was such a luminary. We had all these people from all over the world come visit us at the Institute, these uh, previous Nobel Prize winners and, and discoverers and of all sorts of different things. And what I found was he was much more, he and his wife, Eva Helen, were much more than just great scientists. They were just great people. They, they embodied uh, the concepts of freedom of enterprise, freedom of ideas, respect for individuals, uh, cultural tolerance, all sorts of things that were really important for me at that young age of, as an as a aspiring uh, academic to really learn about. And uh, when I left uh, the Pauling Institute in 83 to go back uh, to my university position, um, the last thing that Dr. Pauling said is I was carrying my, my stuff to my car with my kids packed up, ready to head back to the Seattle area. Um, he said, so Jeff, it's wonderful. I've had you here the last couple of years and you know, I hope we'll continue to be able to collaborate and work together. Uh, but my question is, do you think your classroom is big enough as you go back to your university position? And it was um, then 1,100 miles of driving back with my kids in the car and my wife that I had a chance to really think about what he was saying. What, were the, what was the meaning of that question? And I, I finally came to the conclusion that really what he was asking me is was this a time in my career, I was just 40 some years, early 40s, was this the time where I really needed to consider where I could make my best contribution? And 
by that time, I had uh, done quite a bit of traveling. I had met people around the world. I was starting to do quite a bit of uh, education for practitioners. And I came to the conclusion that really where I should put my energy going forward was trying to help uh, practitioners to learn how to do both nutritional medicine and, and uh, preventive medicine in their practices. And that was really my calling. And so I gave up my tenured faculty position and decided to start off on this new venture, which when I think back now was a little bit crazy because my, uh, my kids uh, were uh, in high school and I had a mortgage and had a family and uh, you know had to uh, kind of have the reality of, of life, which I was giving up all that security as a professor. But it was the right decision uh, in, in retrospect because that opened up my ability to meet so many other people. I've, I've traveled over 6 million miles now in my career all over the world, meeting extraordinary thought leaders. And I'm kind of a mosaic of them. And that ultimately led me to recognize that um, the most important uh, feature of the precedent to disease was how we're functioning. And, and really, no one was really focusing on function. And of course, Linus Pauling was a big believer and actually uh, published many papers around structure and function as one of his principal concepts, going all the way from sub-molecular all, all the way to social enterprise, to get the structure right and function will follow. And so I, I thought, well, maybe this is a time where we really need to bring together thought leaders in, in our field. And I had fortune to meet many of these, Leo Gallen, Sid Baker, David Jones, uh, uh, later Mark Hyman, uh, all people that were really committed to looking at what is the best way we can deliver service to people in need, particularly across the chronic disease area, and, and get away from being tethered to disease into function. And we broke down function into four categories. That was physical function, metabolic function, um, cognitive function, and behavioral function. And I, I just kind of, um, thanks to my wife, who decided that we should put together a whiteboard meeting in Vancouver, in Victoria, British Columbia, and invite 40 of our top friends from around the world to come hang out to talk on whiteboard for three days about what would the healthcare system look like if we was to idealize it and not be set with them the concepts of reimbursement or licensure, but just how would we construct the right kind of system? And it was out of the second year we did that meeting, uh, again, back in Victoria, that was 1990, that I came up with this idea that maybe what we should call this is functional medicine and, and codify the Institute for Functional Medicine. I have to say at first, my colleagues, my, my good friends that were coming to these meetings said, well, Jeff, that's a great idea, but I don't think that's the right term because uh, back then, the term functional medicine was really two different uh, connotations. One was geriatric medicine, older age people who had, were disabled. And the other was psychiatric medicine as meaning psychosomatic illness, that it was all in your mind. It, it didn't right. have a, a high reputation. But I had been reading the literature extensively, and, and I saw that there were many new papers that were coming out that were talking about functional cardiology, functional radiology, functional endocrinology, with a recontextualization of the word function. And so I said, hey, um, maybe we ought to skate to where the fuck is going, to use an old metaphor. And so we then started this Institute for Functional Medicine in, in 1991 with our first meeting. But I have to give now an enclosure uh, a little bit of a mea culpa because it was some eight years later after we had started the Institute for Functional Medicine that one of the colleagues in this uh, institute said, Jeff, did you realize that uh, Willoughby Wade, a professor and dean of medicine at uh, a British medical school, 
published in 1872 in the Lancet magazine, Functional Medicine. And, you know, I, I was very embarrassed because I consider myself a pretty good sleuth of the literature. And I could not find that article initially. It was present. We did find it. And lo and behold, when he talked in his old English um, about his thoughts of functional medicine, it really synced up with what we were trying to do. So I, I cannot claim any credit for this. I have to give Willie B. Wade credit because he first wrote to, of this concept in The Lancet in 1872. We just recapitulated and brought more modern the concepts into the 21st century. Well, certainly, you know, there's that saying, there are no new ideas, but you certainly played a huge role in codifying and organizing and communicating this concept to a larger audience. And I'm forever grateful for that. And I, can, I know I can speak for so many other functional medicine practitioners um, who say that, you know, we, we literally wouldn't be here doing this work without you. So, so wow. much appreciation for you, Dr. Bland, and that. When you look at the functional medicine landscape today, or actually, let me just make that a broader question. When you look at medicine today and how functional medicine has, may have influenced medicine and the way things are going now, what are you most surprised and encouraged by? And what are, what are your, you know, maybe biggest disappointments? Thank you. That's a really, really insightful question. Um, let's talk about where I really feel encouraged <laughs> first. Uh, the when I, when I started lecturing uh, extensively, trying to get this concept across, really in the, in the middle 80s, um, and in fact, uh, one of my attendees at one of those seminars in 1985 sent me just recently a um, syllabus that I had used for that, that I'd put together for that seminar. It was on gut dysbiosis and the gut immune system and the relationship to leaky gut. We kind of came up with that term and started using it in the early to middle 80s. And you know, we were, it was a lot of pushback and people really thought what was wrong with us, we should either have a prefrontal lobotomy or be excised from it, trying to be an educator in health science because there was no such thing as postprandial endotoxemia or leaky gut or did they, as far as they were concerned, it didn't exist. But I'd have to say that now, if you go to the medical literature today, 2022, you'll find that there are literally hundreds of papers being published on these topics using these terms in the traditional, you know, peer-reviewed scientific literature. So I, I think that there has been a, a staying power and a growth of acceptance of what we've been doing because what we were really talking about in the term that we were uh, using it to, to language our model was that we were not trying to trade on the disease model. The, the disease model is what it is. You have the DRGs and you have the ICD-10s. And that handles a specific kind of condition related to kind of terminal illness or, or more late stage pathology. But there was no one really focusing on how do we describe the earlier stages of dysfunction, of health that is chronic in its disease before it becomes more acute. And that was where we were landing. And we were trying to use a new emerging science called systems biology that tied things together into network thinking in a way that was not uh, used in traditional disease-focused um, uh, medicine that was really all, can you name the diagnosis, get to the diagnosis. The sine qua non in medicine was the diagnosis in the pathology-based model. For us, it was going upstream and trying to understand what are the origins that con uh, have confluence that come downstream ultimately to give rise early on to dysfunction that later may become a disease. 
And that required a whole different strategy of thinking, a whole different set of research tools, a whole different clinical approach to the problem. And as with any new quad paradigm, uh, you get a lot of pushback from people who say, well, I already have the answers, don't confuse me with new information. And so we, I think, have made really great uh, strides in progress that the concept of systems biology and healthcare and the concepts of function have both started to gain a landing spot in changing curriculum of healthcare institutions uh, around the globe. And I'm Dr. I'm really... Brent, can we just linger on this for a moment? Because I think it's sure. a profound um, paradigm shift that you're talking about. So profound that maybe the listeners don't even aren't fully even aware of it. Um, so systems approach means, you know, in systems theory, the sum of the parts is more than the whole, right? You don't just add up the parts and get the whole. The whole is the interaction, the emergent interactions between all of the parts and, and, and is so much more complex and so much more profound than the, I would say the tip, the old allopathic paradigm, which is just looking at the body as a disparate collection of parts. And if you have a doctor for every different part, that's fine because we're not really thinking about how these parts interact and inform the health of the whole. To me, that's one of the most fundamental insights that you had and your colleagues had and, and that functional medicine as a whole offers um, because it really changes the whole perspective and the way that we might approach somebody who walks into the clinic door. We're thinking them of them as a whole person with all of these emergent interactions going on rather than just a collection of parts. So can you can you talk a little bit about, you know, any insights you've had along the way with that or or just, you know, how how that came about? How did you start to apply these concepts of systems theory to functional medicine? Well, well, thank you. And again, I want to give uh, credit to uh, Linus Pauling, really, to kind of guide my thinking in this area, because he was already talking about this this concept of function, its relationship to structure, and, and I was heavily impacted by that. My couple of years spent uh, there at the institute, but I think what I maybe uh, took as part of that lesson to the next level was when I started to look at the literature through this, this different lens. And um, what I started to recognize when you looked at people in the clinic or people out in the world at large who had chronic health problems, and you started to examine what their problems were and how they were trying to find solutions to their problems, they would often be seeing, as you just mentioned, Chris, uh, several different subspecialists in different medicines for their different ailments. So. Uh, let's use a classic example, one that I used to talk about a lot in the early days of, of the development of functional medicine. That is a, a woman who had osteoporosis, who had uh, early stage cardiovascular disease, and had rheumatoid arthritis. This is an actual real patient, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> so that, and that's not an uncommon started. cluster of conditions. Yeah. We can see that in thousands of patients, yes. So, so I then... Uh, in speaking with this woman, and this, this is going back now in my experience into the 80s, it became very clear that she was going to Stanford Medical School uh, and, and Medical Center for training, uh, for uh, treatment. And that's a very high center of excellence for pathology-focused medicine. And she had really top three rheumatologists, cardiologists, and uh, person and orthopedist and, and endocrinologist dealing with her bone uh, problems. And so she was getting good 
medicine based upon the model that uh, was segmenting, as you said, into the different um, organ systems, <laughs> treating them independently. And the explanation that was offered to her as to why she had these three conditions simultaneously was to use the English word called comorbidities. These were comorbidities. That's the way they were described to her. Comorbidities mean occasionally these things occur simultaneously in an individual. It's a, a fancy word for coincidence, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. And and so that was a head scratcher, right? Like why? Uh, why did it's not just her alone, as you mentioned? There are many other people that have those three things coming together. So I started really in uh, my colleagues looking at. What are the points of attachment upstream, the biological connections that give downstream um, into the experience of the person, those three different, quote, diseases, which are separated across those specialties of medicine. And we found that there were specific characteristics, we call those fundamental biological processes that were dysfunctional, that then gave rise ultimately to those three different diseases. They were all interconnected. It was part of a system and so rather than treat each individual disease with its own collection of drugs, why don't we go upstream and ask the question, what are the agents that are imbalanced out of these fundamental physiological processes? And can we manage those so that downstream, then all three of those conditions are improved? And starting with from that logic tree, it built out the whole architecture of the functional medicine model because we found, lo and behold, that when we did that, a lot of these conditions that were comorbidities started resolving, all of them simultaneously. Without, yes. By treating cause rather than effect, we ended up with a whole different outcome. So yes. that was really the birthing, I think, in the, in the middle to late 80s of what later then in the 90s became functional medicine for me. Wonderful. Like, you know, making the roots of the tree healthy so that the, the, the trunk and the branches and the leaves are healthy. It makes so much sense, I think, when we explain it to people in simple terms like you have. So uh, tracking back to the original question. So you've seen, and I, I've seen this uh, as well, even in my own much shorter career where, you know, talking about intestinal permeability or leaking gut would get you eye rolls or, you know, perhaps <laughs> laughed, laughed out of the room in a scientific conference. And now if you go and type, you know, go into PubMed, like you said, you'll see thousands of references linking intestinal permeability to not just gastrointestinal problems, but virtually any of the modern chronic diseases that we suffer from today. And there's, that's just one example. There's so many other examples of uh, things that uh, functional medicine pioneers like yourself discovered early on, and we're talking about early on that, that were anathema to the current theory at the time, but then later became uh, you know, not only accepted, but sort of the, the, the default paradigm. So that's the good news. If anything, the answer may be no disappointments, but I'm going to give you a chance here to, uh, you know, when you look at the landscape, was there something that you had really expected to change or make more progress by now that hasn't changed or that's come up against more resistance, perhaps things like the, the conventional medical model with still the infrastructure of insurance and, and licensing and ev everything that you mentioned or, or something else? Is there anything that stands out as, as something you wish would have progressed faster than it has? Yeah, thank you. I, I think there are a, a number of answers to that question I could provide, but let me focus on one that's contemporary right now, and that is the role that uh, nutrition plays and nutritional intervention plays in this whole schema. Um, 
I would have thought as this model of systems biology and the concepts of uh, looking upstream and how that influences downstream effects, that the variable that everyone engages in at some level, which is called eating and food and nutrients within food would have a more dominant impact upon the training of practitioners, I, uh, because it's inescapable that these things that we eat have significant impact upon the genes that represent our book of life that then express our function into how we look, act, and feel. And so the construct that a fundamental principle of this whole thing has to be nutrition and personalization of nutrient intervention seems so obvious to me that it would come along for the ride and be a major tool uh, that would be accessed by health practitioners across different disciplines. And of course, that's not happened. Even today, gastroenterology is not really embraced nutrition as a major core uh, concept. The, the, the one subspecialty of medicine that has to do with the plumbing that uh, associates itself with use of our food and, and where 70% of our immune system is clustered around the intestinal tract, that subspecialty of medicine still does very little uh, in understanding and applying nutritional concepts that for those of us, you and, and our field is just so obvious. So that's that's a little disappointing to No, it's more than a little. It's very disappointing to me. And it, it begs the question, well, why? Why the pushback? Why not the acceptance? And um, I think there are many answers to that question uh, having to do with medical politics, medical economics, uh, medical education, uh, convention, standards of care, uh, hospital medicine versus ambulatory medicine, all sorts of things play a role as to why nutrition doesn't play a more significant role in training of uh, practitioners about how to remediate and prevent uh, a necessary burden of disease. But with that stated, let me give one recent example, and that's just dietary supplementation. If you're a healthcare practitioner enjoying this podcast, you're probably a lifelong learner like me. You know how important it is to continually research and learn, to build on your existing medical training, to expand and deepen your knowledge and skills. And learning about functional medicine is a great way to do that. In fact, it's probably essential for every modern healthcare practitioner today. But it can be tricky to learn about functional medicine, and you have to be careful where you get your information. You need it to be evidence-based. You need it to be practical, not just theoretical. And you need training that's designed to fit into your busy life. With my year-long ADAPT Functional Medicine Practitioner Training, you get all of this plus certification. Imagine one year from now feeling confident using functional medicine to work with patients with complex chronic conditions. With this training, you'll learn what tests to order, which supplements and protocols to use, and how to support your patients in addressing the real root causes of their symptoms. You'll have the opportunity to get your cases reviewed, to move well beyond theory, and actually use what you're learning from day one in your clinic. We are currently enrolling, and we only do that for a few weeks twice per year. So visit cresser.co slash ptp to learn more. That's cresser.co forward slash P is in Peter, T is in Tom, P is in Peter to learn more and start your functional medicine certification training today. Let's talk amino acids for a moment. On my recent episode, Why Amino Acids Are the Building Blocks of Life, 
I discuss why we need amino acids at all stages of life and how Keon aminos can help you live a long, active, healthy life. To truly understand just how vital amino acids are for health, think about your body and what it's made of. You've probably heard before that it's made up of mostly water. What you probably haven't heard is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. These building blocks of life are essential for health and fitness. This is why Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I drink them every day for energy, muscle, and recovery. Keon Aminos is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, undergoes rigorous quality testing, and tastes amazing with all natural flavors. So if you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic recovery, you need to get Keon Aminos. You can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkion.com slash Cresser. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N dot com slash Cresser to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Keon Aminos. So I, I was uh, activated <laughs> within the last month when I read in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, in separate issues of the journal, all coming at the same weeks in late July and August, articles that were really um, criticizing uh, dietary supplements and saying there's no reason for dietary supplements. It was again, going back to the old expensive urine arguments from, from in my case over 40 years ago, which why take a supplement and you just um, excrete it away, it doesn't do you any good. And um, the JAMA had two papers that were describing uh, large community-based research on taking vitamin and mineral supplements, looking at the incidence of cancer and heart disease, showing no effect in reduction of either of those by people who took vitamin supplements over a long period of time. And then there was an editorial uh, accompanying those research papers saying, see, this is just once again, another example of why taking supplements is a waste of money and, and could be uh, potentially dangerous. Then the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the, the same period of time, has this article on uh, vitamin D intervention in bone loss and bone fracture, showing no effect of vitamin D supplementation uh, in this study on, on bone loss or bone uh, fracture in, in this large study, which then an editorial followed that saying, see, once again, this is why nutritional supplements are overhyped and they're of low value and maybe even potentially dangerous if you took too much of certain things. So these things come back periodically in my last 40 plus years in this field to be revisited. And they're fallacious based upon the very principles that you and I have already started to talk about. And that is, let me quickly state why I believe they're fallacious. These are studies that are done in community-based, population-based um, structures that are really designed to do drug treatment studies in which you take a very highly active compound that's a new to nature molecule de developed by a pharmaceutical company that has very strong potency to its way that it acts in the body. And then you test it against a thousand people for who have this condition that you want to uh, see its effect. And you see then what the results are in that placebo blinded trial against people who don't take that, that molecule. And because it's such a potent molecule, if it shows a statistically significant difference among the placebo uh, takers, you call that an active drug. And if it's safe enough, then it can be approved. So that's a pharmaceutical model. Now put a nutrient into that specific same testing protocol, that same research protocol, a community-based, population-based study. So you have everybody, unwashed America, take a vitamin supplement over the period of some years. 
And then you look at the aggregate outcome in the statistical outcome and say, did it statistically reach significance of value? And they would say, well, no, it didn't. It didn't reach statistical significance. Now, does that mean that everybody out of those thousand people that studied over the course of years of taking a vitamin supplement had no benefit? No, of course it doesn't. There are people within that study who probably had very significant value because they had unique personal needs that were different than the group at large, but they were lost in the noise of the study design and the statistics. So the conclusion is vitamin supplements don't work. But for those people that did work, it was hugely valuable. And people do not take vitamin supplements for the group. They take <laughs> vitamin supplements for themselves. That's right. So in our population, we know that people invest, a great percentage of our population invests in life insurance. Now, of those people that invest in life insurance, how many people ultimately get value from the premiums that they have paid if they're, if they're investing in term insurance? How many people actually use their benefits because they had something for which the, the insurance policy would have paid uh, in a life insurance policy? The, the majority do not. Therefore, why do people invest in life insurance? Because they want the security of thinking if they were one of those people that needed it, that they would have it. And they're willing to pay on that risk equation to have the backstop of they may be one of those in need. By the way, that relates to taking vitamin supplements because you don't know unless you're doing exhaustive functional testing and starting to look at your personalized nutritional needs, which fortunately now is starting to come much more readily available. But as an inexpensive, safe way of filling gaps for which you may not know exactly what your gaps are, it's like a an insurance policy. So it's the same logic, and you cannot get the answer to that by doing a large population-based study to look for statistical significance. That's an entirely different question for drugs alone. So to me, this, is, this argument continues to be fallacious about why dietary supplements are not valuable. There, yeah, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, as as you said from the beginning, the game is rigged against supplements in the way that supplement that those studies are designed, and for that matter, that's also what makes it very difficult to study functional medicine interventions because the whole research paradigm is based on the concept of isolating the impact of a single variable, whereas we just acknowledge that human body functions as a system. You know, it's closer to systems theory and you're looking at emergent properties across all of these different interactions that can't possibly be captured in a, an RCT, you know, randomized controlled trial study design. Yeah, and that's why we're starting to see uh, studies like what are called N of one studies, yeah. in which the person is the control to themselves. Uh, and I, I think what as this technology is developed now, this new study protocol, we're starting to ex, ex, really see the validity for personalization. Now, why you might, a person might ask, well, why weren't we doing N of one studies before? Because they're they're actually more complex statistically to analyze than a group aggregate study. And now we have these new computer systems, informatic systems that can analyze data sets that are much more complex to design answers than we did before. So now we're starting to see, oh my word, these N of one studies where the person is their own internal control actually does produce valid outcomes that are statistically significant. So it begs for personalization, which begs for the functional medicine model, basically treating each individual as they need. 
Absolutely. And even some of the studies that have compared functional medicine against standard, standard care, you know, that, that can be a useful model as well. Going back to supplements, and the, I saw those same studies, and they made my blood boil, as, as, as we often do. <laughs> you know, some of the questions going through my mind were, what were the doses of the supplements taking? What forms were the nutrients in? For example, was it folic acid or folate? Or, you know, was it uh, methylcobalamin versus cyanocobalamin for B12? You know, what were the blood levels of vitamin D attained? In other words, if, if we know if someone was taking 400 IU of vitamin D, which is a pretty standard dose in a multivitamin, we don't know anything about whether that actually raised their serum 25D level to the, to the range that most, you know, researchers like Dr. Hollick and others who spent a lifetime studying vitamin D suggest it should be, which is, by the way, much higher than the lower end of the conventional lab range of 30 nanograms per. Uh, death leader in the U.S. And, uh, you know, we could go on, but there's so many questions that have to be asked about a study that shows that supplements were not effective. And I want to tie this together and use it as a segue to talking about immunity, um, because I know this is a topic you're passionate about and written about lately. So one of my big disappointments in the last two years was exactly what you referred to in terms of the lack of acknowledgement of the role that nutrition plays in overall health generally, but also in immunity specifically. <laughs> we know from pioneering research from so many different clinicians that the body needs 40 micronutrients to function properly. Dr. Bruce Ames at UC Berkeley has done incredible research on what he calls triage theory, which states that if we don't get enough of even a you know, suboptimal amount of one particular nutrient that can cause a whole cascade of reactions in the body that, that lead to problems over time. During the pandemic, I saw very little discussion, at least in mainstream media sources, on the role that nutrients play in immune health. And I know this is something you've spoken a lot about, that nutrition is critical for immunity and overall health. So maybe we could start there as a segue of, of uh, immune function. Like what are the most important nutrients for immunity and, and why are they so important to our immune function? Well, Chris, you've uh, just crossed the Rubicon here. And, and this to me is uh, where I've been kind of led in the last uh, five years of my, my life professionally. Um, I started asking more and more what are the ways that our body communicates 24-7, 365 with the outside world that changes our inside function? Because our genes are there to pick up information and, and to translate that information into function. And so I, I started really asking, what are the, the ways our body does that communication process? And there are really three places that our body is in direct contact with the outside world that makes information available to every cell in our body all the time, every day, all of our life. And those are the nervous system, which most people are very familiar with, uh, both the peripheral and central nervous systems. Uh, secondly, are our mucosal surfaces, like the linings of our lungs and our, our digestive system and our skin, uh, picking up information all the time from the environment. And the third is our immune system. And of those three, the one that can change the most rapidly in terms of its cellular architecture, it turns out to be the immune system. People don't recognize this, but 
um, we turn over our immune systems to new cells, uh, replacing old cells about every three months, uh, two to three months. And you know, we're producing actually in minute, every minute of our life, we're producing uh, hundreds of thousands of new white blood cells, our immune cells are being produced every minute. And the question is, are those immune cells that are being produced the same as the ones that they're gonna take the place of, are they better functioning or are they worse functioning? And the powerful lesson that we've learned from immunology the last decade is that our bodies are responding to how our immune system is functioning based upon the information that our immune system is getting through the way those cells are actually being produced out of the bone marrow and, and through our thymus gland and so forth. And so there's a lot of variability in the education that our immune system is getting based upon the signals that we're sending it in a 24-7, 365 uh, lesson plan. And therefore, there's a lot of opportunity for our immune system either to collect bad experiences that become debris. Some people call these zombie cells, or they become uh, aged uh, cells that have bad experiences locked into them, so they become inflammation-type cells. Or the alternative of that is cells that can be re regenerated into a, a younger state. We call that immunorejuvenation. And that dynamic process between the aging of the immune system and between re the rejuvenation of the immune system is going on in all of us all the time. The problem is, right now, as a consequence of what we're exposed to, how we eat, how we live, stress patterns, sleep patterns, all the toxins that we're exposed to, for many people, the bad experiences our immune system are experiencing are collecting faster than the rejuvenation experiences. So that means our immune system gets senescent, it gets aged. And as it gets aged, it is less resilient and it is more at battle with the body. It's more producing inflammation, that's called inflammaging. And therefore our age and birthdays may be actually less than the age of our immune system. We could be 30 years in birthdays and we could have an immune system functioning like a 60 year old because it's collected all these, these, these bad experiences that it can't rejuvenate. So to me, this, this construct today of how diet and lifestyle and environment impact then our immune system function and resiliency, particularly now that we've gone through SARS-CoV-2 and seen how different cultures have responded to that virus based upon their immune system capability, we recognize how important that, uh, that system is that signals to all other systems, like the gut to the brain, the gut uh, immune system to the joints and arthritis, the, to the thyroid gland with the immune thyroiditis, to uh, the muscles with regard to fibromyalgia. All of these things become part of this immune system capability to rejuvenate itself and to get rid of the damaged memories it's had, the so-called scars, immune scars, from past experiences and exposures. I love this conversation because it does a couple of things uh, that I think are really important. Number one, it expands the understanding of what the immune system is. I think when a lot of people hear immunity or immune system, they think of you know, perhaps defending against pathogens like a virus or a bacteria or something like that. They may not understand inflammation, as you mentioned, as a core characteristic of immune function. That's really, if we're going to talk about inflammation, we're really talking about that umbrella of the immune system. That, that's what it falls under. And then, of course, diseases like cancer uh, are, are essentially dysfunction of the immune system. And cancer is one of the leading causes of death. 
Uh, and it, it's something that we still haven't been able to get a handle on with modern medicine, you know, like this idea of just a one pill cure uh, for cancer, despite a lot of years and a lot of research hasn't come about. And I, I think you'd probably agree because we're barking up the wrong tree there. We're, we're not really understanding the systems approach that you mentioned. The second thing is this, I love the distinction you're making between immunosenescence, which is the you know aging of the immune system over time, and immunorejuvenation, which is the flip side of that, where we actually have an opportunity to rejuvenate and regenerate our immune system. And there's an analogy I like to use, um, which you basically just explained, as a, of a bank account, where if you make a lot more withdrawals from your bank account than you do deposits. I think we all know where that's going to end up, you know, <laughs> so not, not very well. And things like stress and poor diet and not getting enough sleep and not getting enough physical activity, those are all withdrawals from the bank account. And things like eating a nutrient-dense diet, you know, the flip side of everything I just said, managing your stress, getting enough exercise, spending time outside, smart supplementation, um, those are all deposits in the bank account. So as you've studied immunity over the years, what are the biggest drivers, do you think, in that process of, of contributing to immunorejuvenation and slowing down the process of immunosenescence? Yeah, so this has been a revelation for me. And, you know, I started hanging out with uh, immune scientists about... Um, Oh, six or seven years ago, because I really wanted to know what they were studying and what kind of discoveries they were making. And there was a revolution kind of in, uh, in uh, breakthroughs in making discoveries about the immune system. It's similar to what was happening uh, in my history back in the, uh, in the early 80s with the HIV AIDS. Uh, that was another great period of learning a lot about the immune system. And I wanted to kind of keep abreast of what was going on. And so in so doing, what I started to recognize is that these mechanisms by which the immune system can rejuvenate itself were really being discovered. And in fact, um, a Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology was uh, awarded in, 19, in 2013, so just uh, uh, eight, nine years ago, uh, for the discovery of one of the fundamental processes by which this occurs, which is called autophagy. And then it started to really uh, gain even more traction as people started to look at the epigenetic impact on the immune system of uh, being exposed to stress or being exposed to toxins or to poor quality diets. And, and these things then would, would mark our uh, immune uh, system of our genes and, and within the, um, the genes of our immune system and actually create alternate uh, uh, res response that become these inflammatory responses you're talking about. So all this kind of new discovery was starting to come about. Then it was an aha for me because uh, I think all of us, you know, they say, Pastor used to say, chance favors a prepared mind. So, um, you know, I was in the mode of really thinking about this. And then all of a sudden I started to be uh, having these coincidences. I'm not sure they were really coincidences, but uh, they seem like it. The first coincidence was I met an investigator at Vanderbilt University Medical School who was doing some extraordinary work on treating blood, high blood pressure through modification of the immune system. And I'd never thought about how could the immune system be connected to blood pressure? And he had uh, discovered a, a molecule that could influence the immune system in such a way that it in, improved in the way the immune system spoke to the vascular endothelium, the lining of the blood vessels, and it relaxed the blood vessels and lowered blood pressure. And that molecule was called 
2-hydroxylbenzylamine. And when I looked into that and spoke to him in greater length, I found out that he had uh, found that there was only one place in nature, in one food, where that specific molecule was found. It was in an interesting plant that I was not familiar with at all called Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Well, I know common buckwheat, but I didn't know anything about Himalayan tartary buckwheat, a different uh, genetic form of it. So that was number one. Then number two, um, I then went to my colleague of 25 years, uh, Trish Uri, and I said, Trish, do you know anything about this Himalayan tartary buckwheat? And she said, no, I don't, but I could maybe do some sleuthing on the web and see if I could find out more about it and who's growing it and so forth in the United States. So she was able to locate one and only one grower, Sam and Lucia Beer, in upstate New York, a former uh, Cornell University ag professor, now retired, and his nurse retired wife that had a hobby farm, and they were growing a few acres of this unique cultivar that they had gotten the seeds from the USDA and were doing it for fun. And, and then I just happened at that same time to take a trip to China on invited, uh, invitation to speak to the Chinese uh, Health Check Center annual meeting in Harbin, China. And uh, my guide host there was a very interesting uh, Chinese doctor trained in the United States. And as we were taking the bullet train from Harbin way up there in Northern China to Shanghai, so it's about 2,200 miles of a train ride at 250 miles an hour. I asked him halfway across China, I said, do you know anything about Himalayan tartary buckwheat? And it was like the train had stopped and, and time was frozen. And, and he said, you gotta be kidding me. He says, I have been wondering, my colleagues and I, if we could find someone in the United States that was interested in this particular uh, plant and its immune activating principles because we are the largest research group studying Himalayan tartary buckwheat. So those three things all happened within a period of just a few weeks of one another. I then connected those things together. We now own uh, uh, organic farms <laughs> in upstate New York that, that are actually producing the first um, organically certified Himalayan tartary buckwheat in, I think maybe in the world, but certainly in the United States. And uh, we're connected in, we uh, have this uh, collegial um, partnership with Sam Beer, who is now retired. And we're collaborating in research with, uh, with the uh, Vanderbilt group on, on the immune effects of these plant bioactives. Therefore, what I came to recognize, and this was a big aha for me, was that we had kind of forgotten a very important family of immune active nutrients. We knew about vitamin C, we knew about vitamin D, we knew about zinc, we knew about glutamine. Uh, we, we had a whole um, arsenal of nutrients that we were familiar with that were immune important, vitamin E being in that. But what I did not recognize until we got into this work about three, four years ago, the important role that these plant phytochemicals have within the polyphenol family or the flavonoid family. And specific members of that range of, of plant nutrients that are often completely neglected in the traditional teaching of nutrition in standard uh, uh, textbooks become extraordinarily important in how they signal the genes to activate these immune principles. And we've actually been studying the mechanisms of how they influence epigenetic regulation of the immune system. We've been looking in clinical human trials. We're just finishing one up. That's a clintrial.gov approved study that will have the results in October from human intervention trial, really looking at the repatterning of the immune system through these polyphenols that are found in these, these rich phytochemical dense foods like Himalayan tartary buckwheat. And this has been, to me, a, a major revolution in thinking 
And I'll just close because I know you're going to follow on in this question that what we've recognized is that part of the effect is the direct effect of these polyphenols on immune system. But then we ask the question, where is that immune system located that those things that we eat in the diet can influence? And it is in the gastrointestinal immune system, which is an intimate connection to the microbiome. So now we're brought into understanding the system, diet, microbiome, gut immune system function, polyphenols, and signaling to all other organs like the brain, to the liver, to the endocrine glands. All these things are interconnected with regard to this new model that's emerging around what I call immunorejuvenation. So it's a really fascinating um, time of discovery for the field, but I feel like it's the next step for us in the functional medicine community. Yeah, I think this is fascinating as a microcosm into this larger discussion of what we've learned about nutrition and how it contributes to health over the last, you know, particularly the last 20 to 30 years. So you, you alluded to this and I want to touch on it and come back to it. And then I want to expand a little bit on the tartary buckwheat because I think it's, it's really fascinating um, superfood that most people are not aware of. So, you know, in the conventional nutrition literature or, or understanding, we have essential vitamins and minerals, right? And that has a very specific meaning. It's not just very important. Essential in nutritional context means that our body doesn't synthesize those compounds and we need to get them from, from food. And these are compounds that everybody's familiar with, iron and zinc, uh, you know, vitamin B12, uh, essential fatty acids like alpha-linolenic acid, and, you know, which, okay, there's a whole discussion about whether EPA and DHA should be considered essential uh, because many people can't convert alpha-linolenic acid. But that was, that's sort of it. If you still, even if you look at nutrient density studies and, and studies on what's important, you're going to mostly see reference to those essential compounds. And of course, they are very important. They are essential. But I would say, and I know you would agree, that over the past 20 to 30 years, we've also seen that the importance of these phytonutrients that you're talking about. But there's no real framework for understanding how important they are in our system because they don't fall under that category of, of essential, meaning, yes, we can live without them. We're not going to die. We're probably not going to get scurvy or rickets or, or, or beriberi, but will we thrive? Will we have optimal health and longevity? Will we have optimal immune function? Probably not. So what do you think about that? Like, should, should we be creating a new category or some, some way of really understanding the importance of these phytonutrients because it seems to me that we don't really have a bucket or a, a framework for for emphasizing their importance at this point. Well, Chris, I think that is really insightful. I want to really uh, give you a stroke. So I think that the way you contextualize that and said it is really the enigma and the challenge we have today. But I, I want to come back to your point about it, the word essential because words can mean, you know, be, be very important, obviously. So essential in the context, as you were describing, uh, in nutrition has always meant if you take them out of the diet, you will see some untoward pathology result, something that will be identified as an illness on, as the downstream. And um, if you then recontextualize the word uh, essential to tie to function, not to pathology, now suddenly a new con uh, con context for the word uh, essential 
starts to emerge. And what have we learned about phytochemicals? Well, we've learned that their role in human physiology is that they mod modify how our genes are expressed, how our book of life is read. Therefore, they pattern over time how our genes will be constructed into how we look, act, and feel in ways that are different than essential, meaning the absence of a disease. It is the presence of resilience, the presence of function, the presence of ability to accommodate change, stress in our lives. And so there, there is, as, you, as you're alluding to, a, a need for us to rethink through what the term essential really means and what the role that these phytochemicals play in ultimate high-level wellness and, and uh, living a, a century of high-level living. Now, let me say something quickly about that because I think it's, it's very important to see how we've, in the science of these phytochemicals, uh, its language has emerged. When I first uh, started studying flavonoids, which would be about, I don't know, nearly 40 years ago probably, their construct was that they were antioxidants. And we actually developed in food science ways of studying indirectly the antioxidant capability using things like the ORAC test, the oxygen reducing absorbance. And we would evaluate then the antioxidant capabilities based upon this study. We say, oh, this food has a higher ORAC value than this food. So that means it has higher antioxidant capability. So the whole thing around phytochemicals throughout much of the history that I'm aware of was antioxidants. Now, I'm not saying antioxidants are not valuable. I'm not saying the term is, is uh, passe, but I'm saying that's not what we now recognize as the central tip of the spear as to how these phytochemicals work. They really work as modulators of gene expression. They modulate uh, through a process <laughs> that is much more specific than just their antioxidant properties. And that's why the antioxidant phytochemicals that come from cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage have a different effect on the body than the antioxidant phytochemicals that come from apples and berries and, uh, and whole grains. They have different effects by the way that they speak to the genes to create outcome in terms of, in the, in the case that we're speaking to here, immune function. So we have moved from a generalized concept to a much more precision concept as to the role of these various families of phytochemicals. This is a major step forward, by the way, in the uh, personalization and the precision of functional medicine. Because now we don't just say, eat foods of the rainbow, that's good. Uh, different colored foods in their natural state have different kinds of phytochemicals in them. That's a good first step. But now we might say in, in nutritional therapy that we need to ask, well, what phytochemicals are going to impact the value in that individual based on their genetic need that will give the best outcome in things like autoimmune disease or the things like uh, chronic inflammatory bowel disease or the things like uh, metabolic syndrome or where the list can go on and on. And that's really this next step forward that we're so excited about because we're improving the precision as to how to personalize these programs for need. That makes perfect sense. And I, I would I would say, I think context makes a big difference here. You know, maybe a hundred years ago when the biggest problem we were facing was still malnutrition, 
even in the in the lots of parts of the developed world, it made it made sense to focus on essential vitamins and minerals, which prevent those acute diseases of malnutrition like rickets and scurvy, beriberi, etc. And of course, there are still many parts of the world where that is malnutrition is a significant threat, and that is should remain the major focus. In the developed world, many people are meeting their basic nutrition needs, although I think some are, you know, those needs we understand uh, are out of date now. Like the the laboratory, you know, the amount of a of a nutrient that's actually needed for optimal function is higher, I think, than than the typical uh, you know RDA reference range would suggest. But what you're speaking to is that. Yes, even for those of us who are meeting our basic needs and we're avoiding those acute diseases of malnutrition, that's not really the main issue anymore. The main issue is how we're dealing with these constant threats that we face in the living in the modern world, exposure to a growing number of environmental toxins and lack of sleep and chronic unrelenting stress and things that disrupt the gut microbiome like antibiotics and poor diet and other medications and those are really the challenges that most of us face today, and all of those issues contribute to chronic diseases, which now comprise seven of the 10 top causes of death. Most of us are not dying from pneumonia or tuberculosis anymore, as we were in the early, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. We're dying from heart disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia. These are the diseases of civilization and phytonutrients because of their role in, in regulating epigenetics seem to be at least as important, if not more so, to those of us living in the modern world than, than the, uh, well, maybe not more important than essential nutrients, but at the same level of importance, for sure. Well, I, I think you just gave a summary to what takes me hours to describe. You did a beautiful job of summarizing it in very quick bullet points. I, th I think this distills down for me and our group uh, that's been pretty heavily immersed in this now through our big world health activities, into three kind of pillars, three therapeutic uh, kind of uh, categories uh, in terms of nutrition for this re um, rejuvenation of the immune system. And, and we've talked now a lot about one, which are the, uh, the flavonoid polyphenol family of phytochemicals. That's uh, things like quercetin, luteolin, asperidin, uh, rutin, members of that family have all been found to be extraordinarily valuable for uh, activating this process of immunorejuvenation. And by the way, those are uh, coincidentally, the, some of the highest phytochemicals in this Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Just, uh, in fact, uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat has 50 to 100 times higher levels of that. That wasn't percent, that was times. 50 to 100 times higher levels than any other plant food. So that it's a really remarkable immune active uh, plant food relative to that uh, family of nutrients. The second one you've also mentioned which are the uh, essential fatty acids or the omega-3 fatty acid family. So you have uh, the EPA, the DHA, the DPA, and you also have now this emerging uh, other uh, members of that family, the so-called pro-resolving mediators or PRMs that are found in these uh, minimally processed uh, oil products that have this very active resolving capability for inflammation, the 14, 17, and 15 uh, pro-resolving mediator compounds that are found in minimally processed uh, oils uh, that uh, deliver then in enhanced um, immune resolving capability. And then the third pillar, so I've first talked about the flavonoids and the polyphenols, second about the uh, omega-3s, and the third are the pre and probiotics, uh, because these all work together 
to give resilience to uh, where 78% of our immune system is clustered around the immune, uh, around the gut. So our microbiome's integrity and a friendly microbiome becomes an extraordinarily important component of rejuvenating our immune system. So pre and probiotics, one pillar, um, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, another pillar, and the polyphenols, the third pillar. And that then comes together to be the immuno rejuvenation program. That's how we would actually approach that as a dietary intervention program. Mm, just fantastic. I'm, I'm such a big believer in superfoods and the role that they can play in optimizing our health and well being. You know, in a perfect world, and maybe the world that our ancestors lived in um, many, many years ago, we, we could get everything we needed just from consuming our regular nutrient dense diet. But I no longer believe that that's possible for the vast majority of us. <laughs> just yeah. through my clinical experience, literally testing every patient that has walked through my door in 15 years for nutrient deficiencies. I've said this recently on my show. You know, I can remember maybe 10 people in that time who didn't have you know, nutrient deficiency and uh, all of the challenges that we've talked about that we face in the modern world today. I, I just, you know, I think it, we need these kinds of, of foods like uh, the, the tartary buckwheat that, that Big Bold Health has introduced and, and uh, to really give us some insulation, <laughs> if you will, against all of the challenges that, that we face today. It's uh, I've often said the modern world is in many ways antithetical to health. And I, I wish that that were not the case. I wish that, you know, the, the world that we lived in was more conducive to our health and well-being. But speaking personally, I want, you know, I'm, uh, I'm approaching 50. I want the next 50 years of my life to be even better than the first. And I actually believe that that's possible. And I'm going to take every step that I can to ensure that outcome. And that involved, you know, a lot of that involves making, maximizing my intake of not just essential nutrients, but phytonutrients, essential fatty acids, and pro, pro and prebiotics, as you mentioned. So I'm, I'm uh, really fascinated by the tartary buckwheat. I'm super excited that you brought this to market and made it available for everyone. Like you said, it's packed with these phytonutrients, with uh, hobamine, we didn't get a chance to talk about, D-chiro inositol, prebiotic fibers, lots of essential vitamins and minerals, and um, can't wait for people to, to try this. So where can people learn a little bit more about this, Dr. Bland? And then if they're interested in following you and your work, where's the best place to do that? Well, thank you. By the way, Hobamine is, is actually the trade name for the two hydroxyl benzylamine that right. I talked about right. that I met the investigator from Vanderbilt. So it's all part of this system. And we have done, I think, a pretty good job. Um, it's obviously been accelerated through the SARS-CoV-2 uh, explosion of information about immunity to get that material um, up on, on our website, which is um, uh, bigboldhealth.com. Uh, you can find a treasure trove of information about the, this whole thing I've been speaking, speaking to. Uh, the Excitement for me is this organization that we we put together now 10 years ago called the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute that is kind of the companion organization to that of the Institute for Functional Medicine. Um, on its website, it has all sorts of uh, uh, free available educational programs around this whole explosion of information. So that's uh, PLM Institute, plminstitute.org. You can find that. And then lastly, uh, if you're interested in kind of tracking what Jeff Bland is doing and, you know, where his travels take him 
and what, what he's uh, doing in terms of uh, talking to people in the field, uh, Jeffrey Bland, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Bland, B-L-A-N-D.com. But I really encourage people to go to our Big World Health website. I think you'll find a lot of very interesting news to use there as it relates to this explosion about immunorejuvenation. And, you know, I, I just uh, had my 76th birthday about a half a year ago. And so for me, it becomes ever more important, obviously, this whole immune rejuvenation and immune vigilance and resilience program. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uh, committed to our program, staying on it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm my own end of one experiment. So all of this is part of us moving forward and learning how we can have 100 years at least of good living. That's, that's the objective. Absolutely, Dr. Bland. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you on the show and want to thank you again for all of the work you've done in this field. And yeah, just uh, really enjoyed this conversation and hope to have you back on the show again in the future. Well, I sent it right back to you, Chris. You're doing a magic, a magnificent job of spreading really important information that can be health changing for all the people that are following you. So keep up the great work. I'm very privileged to have uh, be part of the community that we're all sharing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep sending your questions at chriscresser.com slash podcast. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.